Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchanges World News Roundup for Tuesday, May 23rd, 2023. Uh, let's get into it. Uh, there's a couple of anniversaries on May 23rd, 1430, during the early days of their siege of the town of Compiègne. Uh, hope I did my terrible French did not uh, mangle that too badly. Uh, Burgundian forces drove off a sortie by the French garrison, and in the process, they captured none other than Joan of Arc, the heroine of the Siege of Orléans. The Burgundians turned Joan over to their English allies uh, in exchange, of course, for a tidy ransom, and English authorities quickly put her on trial for blasphemy among her alleged crimes, claiming to have received direct communication from God and wearing masculine clothing, which it strikes me if you're going to go into battle is kind of inevitable in those days, but I digress. The verdict was never, of course, in doubt. England intended to discredit French King Charles VII's claim on the throne by associating him with a quote-unquote convicted heretic. Uh, Joan was executed on May 30th, 1431, uh, as far as the siege was concerned, it ended in November 1430 uh, with a French victory, but was not terribly decisive as far as the wider Hundred Years' War was concerned. Also on May 23rd, 1618, two Catholic Bohemian nobles, Jaroslav Borita of Martinice and Willem Slavata of Schlum, I probably mangled those two apologies, uh, were thrown out of the top floor window of the Bohemian Chancellery in Prague by a group of Protestant nobles who were angry over the religious policies of the Bohemian king, future Holy Roman Emperor Ferdinand II. Uh, both of them somehow survived the 70-foot drop at this defenestration of Prague, which is one of three defenestrations of Prague, but is the one that most people mean when they say the defenestration of Prague. This is the one that helped trigger the Thirty Years' War, ergo. It is the most uh, famous of the three, shall we say, or perhaps infamous. On to the news. In the Middle East, in Iraq, an apparent Turkish drone strike killed three Sinjar resistance units fighters, so that's YBS is the acronym, in the Sinjar district of Iraq on Tuesday. YBS is affiliated with the Kurdistan Workers' Party, or PKK, and so the Turkish government regards its fighters as legitimate targets. In Lebanon, German prosecutors have issued a warrant for the arrest of Lebanese Central Bank Governor Riyad Salame, joining French prosecutors uh, as a Europe-wide investigation into Lebanese corruption continues. The Germans reportedly informed Lebanese authorities about the warrant on Tuesday. Lebanon, as a rule, does not extradite its citizens for prosecution abroad, but Lebanese officials have suggested an openness to consider trying Salame in Lebanon. My guess is that he'll escape prosecution because whatever he might say in testimony could implicate other members of Lebanon's ruling elite, but that's just a guess, uh, as is frequently the case. Happy to be proven wrong uh, if that's what happens. In Iran, uh, satellite imagery confirms that the Iranian government is building a new nuclear facility of some kind not far from its Natanz nuclear enrichment plant. The Iranians say it's a new centrifuge manufacturing plant that's meant to replace the Natanz plant that was heavily damaged in an act of likely Israeli sabotage back in 2020. What's of concern is that this new structure is apparently situated so far underground as to make it impervious even to the vaunted GBU-57, the U.S. bunker buster bomb. Plans for a possible airstrike against Iranian nuclear targets like the country's hardened Fordo facility call for using two such bombs in quick succession. But but if this new structure is as far underground as is being speculated, then even two of them would probably not be enough. 
This is all relatively uninteresting, unless you're of the opinion that the existence of an Iranian nuclear program is a cause of spelli. Unfortunately, that happens to be the opinion of the Israeli government and at least some elements within the U.S. government. So Iran's construction of a nuclear facility that is well protected from airstrike raises some serious concerns about what sort of action those countries might take against it. Senior Israeli military officers are already publicly musing about this kind of thing, making attacks against Iran's nuclear infrastructure. And that's probably not a good sign. Uh, it is sort of cliche at this point to note that the Iranian nuclear program wasn't a concern until Donald Trump scrapped the 2015 nuclear deal. Uh, but I feel like noting it anyway, even though it is cliche. Uh, on to Asia and Pakistan. The Pakistani Taliban, or TTP, claimed responsibility for an attack on Tuesday against an energy complex operated by MOL Pakistan Oil and Gas Company, which is an affiliate, I gather, of a Hungarian firm in Pakistan's Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province. The attackers killed at least six security personnel on site and caused some material damage. In Indonesia, Iranian President Ebrahim Raisi visited that country on Tuesday, where he and Indonesian President Joko Widodo signed a number of economic deals that notably could see bilateral commerce conducted in Iranian rials and Indonesian rupias rather than in U.S. dollars. This is handy in that Iran is largely blocked from using dollars by U.S. sanctions. Raisi claimed that the two countries are trying to bump bilateral trade up to an annual level of $20 billion, which seems a tad optimistic, given that it stood at around $1 billion last year, $1 billion last year, but I suppose it is good to have stretch goals. Uh, regardless, there are economic opportunities in Indonesia for Iran to exploit, and improving ties with the world's largest predominantly Muslim nation fits with Raisi's recent diplomatic efforts within the Middle East. In East Timor, the opposition National Congress for Timorese Reconstruction, or CNRT party, led by former Prime Minister and former President Janana Guzmao, has apparently won Sunday's East Timorese parliamentary election. State media reported on Tuesday that CNRT took 41% of the vote, which should translate to 31 seats in the national parliament, give or take. That would be just too shy of a majority in the 65-seat body, uh, which puts Guzmao in pretty good shape uh, heading into coalition talks. Uh, the Fritillin Party, uh, Fritillin Party uh, currently the largest member of East Timor's governing coalition, took just under 26% of the vote and should have around 19 seats in the new session. Uh, mathematically, it may be possible for the current four-party governing coalition uh, to stick together and hold a slim majority in the legislature, which would push CNRT into the opposition again. Uh, but media coverage seems to be leaning toward Guzmao as the favorite uh, to form a new government. In North Korea, the Biden administration, joined by the South Korean government on Tuesday, blacklisted one North Korean individual and one entity, the Chinyong Information Technology Cooperation Company, over allegations of widespread cybercrime. The U.S. also blacklisted three other entities that had already been sanctioned by South Korea. The U.S. alleges that the North Korean government seeds IT workers around the world, most particularly in Russia and China, and those workers then engage in illicit activity that's designed to raise money, primarily to support Pyongyang's nuclear and missile programs. On to Africa and Sudan, it would appear, and I know this uh, comes as a great surprise, that the Sudanese military and the rapid support forces are not, strictly speaking, abiding by their seven-day ceasefire, which in theory went into effect late Monday local time. That said, according to Reuters, the ceasefire has offered, quote, some respite, 
end quote, to civilians trapped in Khartoum and its environs. So it seems the fighting has at least ebbed, if not halted entirely. There have been continued reports of artillery fire and of overflights by military aircraft, but notably civilians seem to be indicating a reduction in fighting since the ceasefire began. So maybe it's just taking some time to fully take hold. A Saudi U.S. monitoring group is tracking alleged ceasefire violations, and the threat of sanctions has been dangled in an effort to keep senior leaders on both sides in line. Uh, But among other concerns, there are questions as to how much actual control those senior leaders have over their fighters. It sounds like preparations are being made to move humanitarian aid from Port Sudan into the capital region, but it remains to be seen whether conditions will allow for a large influx of relief. In Ethiopia, thousands of people protested in cities across the Tigray region on Tuesday to demand the ouster of occupying military forces from Eritrea and the return of Tigrayans displaced by the 2020-2022 war between the Ethiopian government with Eritrean help and the Tigray People's Liberation Front. Uh, Although an implementation agreement reached by the Ethiopian government and the TPLF last November called for the removal of non-Ethiopian military forces from Tigray, uh, it should be noted that the original peace deal that they reached doesn't mention foreign forces at all, but the later implementation agreement does, there are still Eritrean soldiers occupying parts of the region. In Europe and Russia, there are indications that the sabotage operation that was underway in Russia's Belgorod Oblast on Monday is no longer a going concern. Russian officials declared on Tuesday that they thoroughly defeated the Ukrainian operatives and or Russian militants involved in that operation, killing more than 70 of them and destroying at least four vehicles. There's no independent confirmation of this claim, but one of the groups involved in the operation, the Russian Volunteer Corps, issued a statement that seemed to suggest that this episode had reached its end while promising more escapades to come. At least one Russian civilian was also reportedly killed in the fighting. Uh, Ukrainian officials are continuing to deny direct involvement in this operation, but a number of their denials seem somewhat tongue-in-cheek, and it's pretty clear that they've at least provided assistance to the quote-unquote saboteur groups. Part of that assistance may have involved U.S.-provided armored vehicles, at least three of which were used in the Belgorod operation, according to the New York Times. Uh, Elsewhere, a Russian court extended the pretrial detention of Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich for another three months on Tuesday. Russian authorities arrested Gershkovich back in March on spying allegations, but beyond that, not much is known about his case. The U.S. government has been demanding his release, but it's unlikely the Russians will be prepared to discuss it until after he's been tried, which now looks like it will take a while. There are a few stories from Ukraine. Uh, in uh, One Ukrainian officials uh, are complaining, or complained on Tuesday at least, that the Russian Navy is blocking grain ships from docking at Ukraine's Pivdeni port, which is one of three Ukrainian ports, in fact the largest of them, that is supposed to be active under the Black Sea Grain Initiative. There's been no comment from the Russian side, but they may be hoping to force the Ukrainians to reopen a pipeline through which Russia exported ammonia for fertilizer, prior to the war. The Russians are keen to get that pipeline working again, but Ukrainian officials have said they'll only reopen it if Russia agrees to expand the Black Sea Grain Initiative to include additional ports and additional products. Elsewhere, I noted a few days ago that Ukrainian officials have been throwing around some improbably high figures 
for the success of their air defenses, suggesting that they might be exaggerating a tad bit. Uh, among those figures were what seems like an extraordinary success rate at defending against Russia's supposedly unstoppable Kinjal hypersonic missiles. Uh, but there is a new piece uh, at Brookings that suggests a different takeaway, which is that maybe the Kinjal isn't all it's cracked up to be. Uh, indeed, the entire category of hypersonic weapons may be mostly hype. I'm so sorry for that. I really am. Uh, the threat inflation, however, is at least useful for wringing higher military budgets out of Congress. So, you know, I mean, there's some upside uh, to, to at least pretending that they're, they're really dangerous. Uh, Ukrainian and finally Ukrainian uh, here in, in, in Ukraine, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's visit to the G7 summit in Japan over the weekend was part of a larger diplomatic outreach to the non-aligned world, countries that on the whole have not fallen in line behind the West's pro-Ukraine position. Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Okuleba is now on a tour of Africa trying to shore up support. And of course, Zelensky's G7 trip came after he made a surprise visit on Friday to the Arab League Leader Summit in Saudi Arabia. Zelensky spent a good deal of time in Japan courting Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, who was attending the G7 as an observer. I don't know how much actual progress he made on that front, but his cordial meeting with the Indian PM stands in stark contrast with his treatment of Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, who was apparently snubbed by Zelensky. I'm not entirely sure why. Uh, in Greece, lucky duck Greek voters are officially getting to do Sunday's parliamentary election all over again, probably on June 25th. After Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis, uh, whose New Democracy Party won the election but fell short of a sole majority, rejected the possibility of forming a coalition, the election's second and third place finishers, the Syriza and Pasok parties, were each presented with the authority to form a government on Tuesday in accordance with Greek law. Both parties immediately rejected the mandate since they really had no chance of actually succeeding, thereby locking in the snap election. The next vote will be held under a new electoral rule that will make it easier for a single party to amass a parliamentary majority. And in the Americas, finally in the United States, there's a new piece in Foreign Affairs from Emma Ashford, Joshua Itzkowitz, Schifrinson, uh, and Stephen Wertheim that makes the case for reducing the U.S. role in providing European security. Uh, I'll read you just a couple of paragraphs here. For many analysts in Washington, uh, this move would be a costly mistake. As the political scientist Michael Mazar recently wrote in Foreign Affairs, significantly downgrading the United States' defense commitments in Europe would, quote, validate the grim picture that China and Russia now paint of a United States that is pitilessly self-centered and transactional and would severely undermine the United States' painstaking attempts to build a reputation as that rare great power that offers something to the world other than naked ambition, end quote. This is a common refrain among those who believe that any meaningful U.S. military drawdown from Europe, most likely involving other states stepping up to shoulder the lion's share of the defense burden, would sever U.S. ties with the continent and even the world. Pulling back, they argue, is prohibitively risky, would save little money, and could destroy broader cooperation between the United States and Europe. This concern is overblown. It rests on excessive optimism about the United States' ability to deter both China and Russia indefinitely, and on unwarranted pessimism 
optimism about the trajectory of a more capable Europe. In reality, countries on both sides of the Atlantic would benefit from transferring most of the responsibility for defending Europe to Europeans themselves, allowing the United States to shift to a supporting role. The result is more likely to be a balanced and sustainable transatlantic partnership than a transatlantic divorce. The alternative, meanwhile, is to stick with a deteriorating status quo that suppresses Europe's defense capabilities and asks ever more of Washington. Uh, it's a good piece. I would, I would recommend you, uh, you check it out. Uh, on that note, uh, that's all for us tonight. I want to thank all of you for uh, listening to and or reading the newsletter. And thanks to those of you who are foreign exchanges subscribers, especially those of you who are paid foreign exchanges subscribers. And I really uh, can't say enough if you're not one of those, but you enjoy the newsletter, please consider making that jump to paid subscriber and supporting the work that goes on here. Uh, it is most necessary to continuing the newsletter. Uh, with that, uh, until next time, take care and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.